Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Good Grow Great podcast. This is Talia Toha and this is Great Lengths. This is the episode in the segment where we dive in to someone's story or maybe another uh, person's story, two people's stories together so that we can figure out really how they've gotten to where they are right now, their journey, their amazing stories, epic successes, maybe even epic fails that they're willing to share with us. And why we do this is so that you guys who are listening at home can adopt and adapt beautiful and meaningful things that you can just kind of take home and digest and just be like, you know what? That's amazing. I'm going to try to do that. Or you know what? I'm going to try to do it this way, or I'm not going to do that, right? Whatever that might be, this episode is for you guys. If you're listening and you're creating something and you are perhaps new at trying to share your message. And I think this is something that I think even at a higher level and more advanced level, very, very useful for you because when you think about sharing your message, when you think about uh, really kind of debunking your mental blocks and your mental mindset that sometimes can keep you stuck, this is really a great episode because today we have Paul Curie, and Paul is an assistant clinical professor at UCLA. He was a consultant writer for three seasons on the TV show Chicago Med, which is on NBC in the U.S., and he's also the chief medical officer at a mental health-focused company that he founded, Udify, and is also a licensed psychotherapist. So he wears many hats. He is super busy, so you guys are in luck that today he shares really these beautiful eye-opening insights about what really you can do to start taking a step towards clarity, especially if you're going through certain things like anger or anxiousness and you're not sure why certain things are not moving your way, right? And why you are unable to get past a certain mindset block, right? Sometimes that happens and you look everywhere and you just can't figure it out. Uh, And Paul really walks us through his own personal journey, starting from when he was really, really incredibly young and how that catapulted him towards a journey of self-discovery, which obviously we all are still learning about ourselves, which is why I want to invite you to really closely tune in, listen to some of the techniques, discoveries, revelations that he's found out, and how you can really do the same towards uh, in your life. That way you can still move towards that beautiful momentums of living an enriched life, one that you're proud of. So without further ado, be sure to hit that follow Add, subscribe, collect, download, and grow solvers. Let's dive in. Paul, so good having you. And I'm so excited to chat with you, chat about storytelling, your work uh, some time ago with Chicago Med, right? And uh, psychotherapy, UCLA, all of the good stuff. But before we go into any of that, I actually want to start with your experience with anger management when you were 15 or when you're younger. And Yeah, when you you mentioned that you started meditating, you started working on it when you were young, which kind of surprised me because when you're that young, 
I mean, I know when I was that young, I probably would have been like, no, I don't have a problem with that. Was that your reaction when was this suggested by someone or was this something like that's self-initiated? It was pretty self-initiated. I mean, I was a teenager. Um, I'm, I kind of am a guy that doesn't fit into a lot of boxes or I sort of fit into multiple boxes simultaneously. So, you know, I'm half white, I'm uh, half Asian. I grew up in the Midwest in a little Rust Belt city and, you know, I didn't quite fit into to all of those boxes. And then, you know, I, I, um, you know, I was 15 years old and fell in love with a girl and got disappointed a lot. And, and there's all this frustration that happens as this angsty teenager yeah. and no, you know, psychological services or anything else to understand it. So I did what I could, which was, um, you know, journaling and connecting with friends of mine. And I was in this sort of you know, angsty, heavy metal sort of culture, um, which where where anger is sort of cultivated. And, you know, I got angry a lot. And eventually I, um, I don't know, I I knew it wasn't working. And so I knew it wasn't like solving it. Like there's, that doesn't go anywhere. Um, And I was self-aware enough to realize that, but I didn't have anything else. So I just sort of started doing whatever I could. And one of the things I did was I started talking to, I had an interest in filmmaking. I started talking to a camera and like trying to talk out my problems to figure out like kind of what was the process of it, like what was causing this and how do I change it? And I sort of uh, reverse engineered um, what is now like certain forms of therapy. But then I also stumbled upon um, a meditation book. I was in a, um, a used bookstore as I would frequent. And I came upon a book on transcendental meditation, which was, I could see was stamped from like repurposed from the local prison and had been like put in this. I was like, okay, well, sure. Why not? And so I tried that. And, um, and as I learned different forms of meditation over time, um, it really helped give me sort of a, a tool or a mechanism to be able to calm myself when I need to. Um, and then the other sort of piece in talking things out helped me realize that there are sort of, for me, root causes when I'm frustrated and that I can, I, when I can identify those, I don't have to keep feeding it. Um, but it took me, you know, was, again, 15 years old, it took me a little time to like figure all that out uh, with not a lot of guidance. No. Yeah. yeah. And it could really go south as well. Right. I mean, if you think about teenagers who are trying things on their own. I mean, this is a benign form, but even just trying to kind of um, self-improve, it doesn't always, they don't always find the right resources. So I'm so thankful that first of all, that that it didn't go southward for you and maybe lead into more anger or something. But I wanted to touch on, I mean, you talked about, you know, you're, you're kind of like, okay, this isn't working. Right. But I think mm-hmm. even as, if you are a self-aware 15-year-old, I think even then a lot of people uh, have a bit of a challenge to go, okay, well, should I do something about it? This is just my personality. Right. And I think the reason why I want to talk about this is because even into adulthood, some people still turn, tend to shut something out of their brain. Right. And then they tend to just mm-hmm. kind of push it away. And was there like a pivotal moment or something that happened when you're like, you know what, this really isn't working, right? And you had inclination throughout, but perhaps there was a moment when you're like, oh, I, I want to be a lot more peaceful like that person or whatever. Is, is there anything that kind of made you click? Yeah, I mean, I think there was, there's a lot of little moments, um, some of which were, I realized there were things that were out of my control. So I would go to, you know, I was in high school, 
And I would see this girl that I dated that, you know, was not um, available. We'd broken up and it wasn't going to happen. And, um, you know, it was fine, but I'd recognized that I was sort of still pining and that that wasn't going away. And I had to recognize at a point that um, my wanting it was not actually helping. And I recognize that I remember standing in, you know, uh, my high school hallway at like six, 15 years old still. And I said to myself, like, I feel this hole inside. And I realized that my wanting was creating the hole. Like if I just mm-hmm. stopped wanting it, that that would somehow like change it. It didn't quite heal it, but it changed it. Right. Um, and so that was a big one. And then, you know, there's things like if you're, if you're into sort of the heavier metal culture of the early nineties or mid nineties, you know, it was a lot of like, you know, mosh pits and thrashing and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And I would go to concerts and it would be, um, I'd re- come home and I'd be like, I actually don't feel any better. Mm. Like, you know, I vented in my own way, but I'm home and now I'm like, like I'm tired, but I'm not really feeling any better or, and so I, just started to explore anything else I could. So it's these moments of sort of exhaustion, I guess, that I would experience with the things I was doing and then recognizing that this isn't working. I've got to find something else. And so then I, I just experimented, I guess, until I found other things that worked. Yeah. I love, I I actually really appreciate that you mentioned that um, it's almost that afterthought, right. Of, okay, I have this, I mean, if we use terminologies related to heavy metals, I almost, it's almost like I have this temporary momentary hit of mm-hmm. it's like a momentary fix. And I actually talked about this just recently when people are seeking happiness versus fulfillment. And I think we have as a whole, we have kind of perhaps, I don't know what you think about this, but my observation is that maybe perhaps we have misdefined happiness in a in a way that okay we want it to be like okay it it always has to be like these awesome you know high all the time which is kind of you know right like and I think maybe perhaps your younger self that was kind of the idea oh I want to you know feel good about this let it out heavy Mm -hmm. metal and all that good stuff but afterwards what I appreciate was that you're going it doesn't quite make me have this really this the sanity level that I'm wanting, really the, the, again, that peacefulness that you're really looking for. And then you, you decided to do some videos, record some videos, which is interesting. I'm kind of curious because now, obviously, everybody always records themselves on video. Yeah, this is pre-internet days. Yeah. Keep in mind. Like, this is, the, the internet barely existed, let alone like smartphones. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have those, like one of those big video cams mm-hmm. that even still exists? Okay. Yeah. It had a full, like full size VHS tape and like you'd load it in and I just sit down on a tripod. Okay. It goes into like amateur filmmaking. Yeah. For um, the kids who don't know what VHS is. Right. <laughs> Sorry. So um, if you've ever seen a film reel, the original yeah. film reels are like the things that they would take to movie theaters and roll film. And, and essentially in the late seventies, early eighties, they found a way of converting those films inside of a, a plastic package in a, yeah. in like a, a tape form. And you would put it into this thing. And those are called a VHS tape, a video home service or something. I don't know. I don't even know what it stands for, but all I know is VHS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that exists. That was like the standard for probably like 15 years, probably. And then DVDs came up in terms of it got recorded in a digital form on a disc in the late nineties. And that existed for a while. And now we're just, we just stream everything for the most yeah. part. I mean, 
Blu-rays and stuff exist, but yeah, I love it. Now I'm kind of curious though, um, again, because this is years pre, right? Pre cell phone and everything. What were some of the things that you shared yourself in that video? I know you don't have to share everything, but like, I'm kind of curious because going from the point of I'm angry all the time to the point of I need to kind of, you know, think about things a little bit more carefully and thoughtfully journal, mm-hmm. all that good stuff. Like there's gotta be right. Like what did you ask yourself questions in video? I would totally you- do that. Yeah. yeah, I would I would recap what happened in the day. I'd be as if I was like talking. It was basically like in retrospect now is like I was talking to a therapist. Mm-hmm. I'd, t- I'd talk about what happened and I'd be asking myself questions, being like, what was going on with that? Like what? Why? Like I was I felt so terrible in this thing. And here's what happened. And yeah. And then I would be like, it's like as I was talking things out, I would be putting pieces together that weren't always put together in my head already. And I could start to connect essentially like causation to things that I, that I wouldn't have always identified before. So it was, it was very much like your um, there's this graphic that I see now of like therapy and I'm just making a comparison. And it's like this, it's like a cartoon and it's a person talking and above their head is a little bubble. And it's just this ball of like different colored string. That's just a tangled mess. And then you see it like coming out in in, like strands and you see the like therapist on the other side, like weaving Uh. together or knitting a sweater and like making sense of it. And unfortunately I didn't have anyone else available. So I was just kind of doing what I could on my own, but I think unlike, you know, the way people record things now, I never intended to show that to anybody. Um, it was really just for myself and my own self-exploration. It was not like being intended to be broadcast and to get people's attention in any way. It was just my intentional way of sorting things out. Yeah. Well, I love that that analogy or that depiction actually of like, okay, everything is all here in this big ball of lack of clarity, perhaps for lack of a better word. And then once you put it down in this level, I think maybe that's why journaling works for a lot of people as well. Mm-hmm. For me, sharing, you know, content, writing, all of these, even producing things like that, like this actually is my form of clarity. Cause I, you know, all yeah. of our ideas are up here and in little pieces and they're kind of like uh, really disconnected. Maybe they are connected, but we haven't quite. And it's not until we put it in like physical form that mm-hmm. it right in your case video for some people writing some people audio whatever but using that terminology of therapy and um and therapist was there like a breakthrough moment in that in that journey where you're kind of like ah okay i had no idea that i've been doing this and that's the reason why you know you use the terminology of causality and that's why i'm now um, I was angry yeah. there, right? Were there a couple of breakthrough moments? Yeah, I think there were <clears throat> there were a lot of little breakthrough moments. Um, and I ended up doing video journaling, I think, because I called it video journaling because um, I just could talk faster than I could write. And my mind was like, you know, I was an anxious kid and, and before that and was just um, trying to sort through a lot of thoughts. Um, but I would say that there was a lot of little moments in terms of talking out like what happened in the day. And I was so upset and then as I would, you know, so upset as like, you know, again, like a 15 year old, like, oh, why, how did this, why did this happen to me? What was wrong with like t- piecing together what happened throughout the day? I could sort of start to connect dots when I would look at it, as opposed to just getting consumed with how awful I felt 
yeah. it was being able to like look at the string of events, connect dots and, and find that causality. I wouldn't say that there was a single moment that was like the, the most standout one, but it was, there was a lot of little ones where I was so um, really just sad and depressed or really angry um, and frustrated um, over what happened and whether it was with, you know, feeling socially rejected by somebody um, or by, you know, that girl that I was in love with and, you know, all, all that stuff that, uh, that we get just lost in as I think we could do as adults much of the time oh, too, yeah. but yeah. 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 Maybe with different perspectives. I, I really appreciate it though, like how you had shared. And I think this is why I want the audience to hear this is because sometimes to get out of ourselves and get ourselves out of a corner, it mm-hmm. does take that, you know, you're using the word intentionally. It does take some thoughtful um, anything really, whatever the the platform and venue and, and process that really connects with you in your case, video journaling is sometimes it does take that. And maybe perhaps you learned a few things about story t- storytelling, human behavior, right. Mm-hmm. In that process, as you learn, about yourself, which I think is really interesting because when people are rejecting and refusing to do something, a lot of times the hesitation is like, well, I don't want to do that because that feels like a waste of time. Like I could be doing these other things, right? They just brush it off. Mm -hmm. Um, When in fact, these things that often can be viewed as a waste of time actually often, you know, lead organically to something else, right? In your case, a little bit more depth in your work, Right. Yeah. And I think this is fascinating. No, I, I, I 100% agree. I think that that um, many life experiences can end up becoming sort of foundations for the skills we develop. Um, sometimes they're sort of soft skills, as they're called nowadays, meaning like it's not something that you're going to necessarily put on your resume, but it's something where, you know, it, it becomes a, a way of understanding people, understanding how to have relationships, um, all these things that are actually as important, if not more, for success in the world compared to anything else. Sorry, my dog is moaning at the door. <laughs> they want to join. Yeah, they want to join, um, which is perfectly fine. Um, I do have like this inclination. I do wonder if because a lot of times we kind of write out or write off that, um, you know, things that are bad for us, like people are like, oh, I feel terrible. I feel like I'm, I don't have what it takes, right? Sometimes those things can be turned into strength, right? So mm-hmm. I want to talk about some of your strengths right now, just real briefly, because I think it's useful for people to to um, to hear, right? I mean, you have, you've worked in psychotherapy, you've worked, as we mentioned, as an assistant clinical professor at UCLA. You've also have worked in the past with, you know, TV shows on NBC, Chicago Med, right? I want to touch on, um, uh, you know, kind of going in the, in the flow of human behavior and understanding human nature. When you write, right, um, and w- or when you wrote, let's just use this ex- specific example with uh, Chicago Med, when you wrote for them, um, were there a few really key pillars that you are always, you know, as a consultant, you're like, okay, we cannot take out this piece because it, you know, otherwise the story wouldn't make sense. The character arc wouldn't make sense. Like were there, what were some of the things that you look for when you develop a story? Yeah, I think that there's um, there's a couple of pieces that we would do with the show that would happen simultaneously. So we'd be looking at, you know, whose story is it? 
in terms of one of the leads on the show, you know, we have an ensemble cast, but um, in terms of whose story is it and what's their, their arc or their journey in terms of, are they learning something? Are they going through an emotional journey? Um, are they helping another character on their journey? If they're, if they're a part of that. Um, and then what's the case? So, you know, there's often, it was often a, a case base. It was a Dick Wolf show who's known for like law and order and stuff. Um but what's the case in terms of where, if we're presenting an illness, a medical illness or a psychiatric illness, um, you know, what's the, what's the as- actual aspects of it? Is it a medical mystery? Is it something that we need to be um, sort of working through diagnostically? Or are we helping, you know, someone who can't themselves come to grips with their illness, for example, go through a journey. And so figuring out how to make the sort of plot aspects of that, like how do you help them overcome and, you know, map it out over, you know, 42 minutes of TV. Um, but I think, so we look at sort of the emotional side, there's the plot in terms of how you break it down, that a, a, a story has enough sort of moves and turns to it. Um, and then there's also the sort of medical accuracy. We also had a, we're very cognizant of um, this is actually a form of education to people that they take this as like a, it's a public health messaging in its own way. And so if we're slimming things down, we want to make sure that we don't misrepresent something in some way. So that was always kind of in the back of our heads um, along the way. And I got brought in initially as a consultant for that, for that purpose, even though I'd been writing screenplays for, for years before that. Um, I kind of got in the door as a consultant and, and they said, like, well, how does psychiatry work? And, and that got us talking and um, kind of moved on from there. Yeah, um, I love... I mean, I love a few things that you touched on, right? And I think let's let's kind of go back just a little bit um, from that macro, a few macro points that you had shared as, as far as medical accuracy, plot, um, you know, the case, and uh, whose story it is, and and what are they going through? Um, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, because you have to fit both the physical realism of it, like you were talking about the medical um, education, but also at the same time, the character development. And I'm assuming that you start with the character development, right? And that's kind of your, would that be the corner piece? Um, It really depends. I mean, sometimes people we get, it depends on where we got the case. Like sometimes it's from, we're creating it out of kind of whole cloth in terms of what's, what I know about like that medical illness, for example, or sometimes we would get inspired by like a, a newspaper article or an NPR story or something else where it was like, okay, there's something interesting in there that we can create a different story around in terms of, you know, this person hadn't had this undiagnosed condition that went on for years and like, okay, now let's spin that out and figure out how we can make it a story that works on our show um, different than the way they presented it because a news story is often very different than how you need to present it in, in scripted drama. So it, it's sort of whatever, wherever it gets in the door, we have to sort of build from there. So sometimes it's very much a, um, a personal story. Sometimes we've had ones where it's like, okay, we want to do a story about, um, someone um, who is a young person dying, for example. And so then, and we want to have these kinds of moves to it in terms of we want it to, we want our um, lead male to, you know, be fighting sort of an extra, uh, the, fighting the system to get this person an expensive like test done. 
And so now we know these sort of pieces that we need to slot together. So we know that we need to be a young person. So a young disease needs to be rare enough and hard enough to diagnose that we're going to need to find these people. Okay. Let's try and find something that works with that. And now let's, you know, put together other things. Is it more interesting if it's a male patient or a female patient? Is that going to affect where we know this character, our lead character is in their stories? Like, because they just are having a problem with their mother or they just got out of a romantic relationship or their father just died. How can we plug this into the whole bigger piece? So there's a lot of moving parts, I guess. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like there's a lot of organic pieces that I mean, you, it's almost like you have a general outline and some some key points that you want to hit, but along the way, you're constantly trimming the fat, adding things in, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I am curious though, because especially in TV shows, and um, I think this is useful for people who are listening, who are really content creators, even video wise, whatever, mm-hmm. um, because you obviously have to fit all of those pieces, right, in a, in a given time frame, right? Yeah. That, whatever, and plus ads, you got to make sure you leave room for ads and all of these things. And maybe there are multiple characters, right? Um, mm-hmm. So what is kind of the, is it mostly done in editing where you're, you're cutting things off and you're trying to fit everything together? Um, what do you edit out? Like, what? I mean, those are multiple questions in one, but yeah. I'm just trying to get a better understanding, especially for the audience. Okay, how do sure. you fit a compact, powerful, great storytelling, informative um, information in whatever, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, one hour? Yeah, so an hour of TV usually has like 42 minutes of actual content when you factor in ads. I mean, there's there's all of these steps in the process. Um, editing is absolutely a key piece. And and one of the um, big figures on our show and throughout the Dick Wolf um, uh, empire is Arthur Forney, who's an executive producer and he's the head of post. And he's, he's, he's brilliant in his work in terms of how he can manage so many shows and, and edit uh, stories to figure out what the actual, what's absolutely essential to it. But we started out in the writing process. You, you come up with um, what are the minimal sort of beats, what we call beats for a story? What are the things that need to happen um, in terms of, you know, the plot for things to map out for the journey where we want things to, to happen and how these things interact. Um, and then you basically write those out and you put together what's called a beat sheet, which is all the different pieces of every story And then you put them all together and you try and weave them. We often use like note cards that are different colors, one for each story and put them on a board and you try and see like, is is one of these stories too big? Can we start slimming it down? What are the total number of beats that we can actually fit in an episode? Like honestly, while doing them like the right kind of uh, um, respect to the story that we want to tell. And then sometimes we have to cut them. Sometimes you have to cut a story or you have to cut like the great moments that you love because um, because basically they, it, there's just not room and you have so many other, one of the things that you, that there's a lot of cooks and there's a lot of masters you have to serve within this. Like for ours, you know, I, I was only a low to mid-level writer. There's like eight rungs in TV writer, producer, um, and so we have to meet our upper level writers, our showrunners who are executive producer writers. There's the heads of the Dick Wolf world. There's, there's uh, um, network and um, studio executives. There's all of these people that all have opinions and you have to sort of take notes from all of them and make sure that, that those are being served. And so that means um, 
there's a lot of compromises that have to happen in the way you're creating content um, and and recognizing that if you get 70% of what you intend on the air, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I like that that's the threshold, is the 70%, which actually is quite a lot. I think I know anyone who's ever edited or um, you know, taken things out of things that they really love, I, it's almost like that process is necessary and for good reason, because um, you were mentioning serving other people who are also involved, which is also important, right? But I want to circle back for a minute on your, your key terminology, minimal beats, right? Um, and when you talk about beats, is it usually something along the lines of, okay, um, is it more kind of like an outline of, okay, opening, right? Rising tension, uh, climax, whatever, resolute. Is that kind of what you're talking about or is it something a little bit different? Yeah. I mean, a beat is um, for the most part, like a scene, like a scene, a piece of, of a story. So what happens within that scene um, but you do, you kind of break down um, what needs to fit within all the little moments of a story. Okay. Like at some point we need to, for, first we need to meet, let's say in a, in a general patient story, we need to meet the patient, get presented the problem at some point, like there's going to be, you know, a diagnosis that we're chasing. It's going to turn out to be wrong. The person's going to get worse. Like you, you sort of get the feel for, yeah, like classic Aristotelian sort of storytelling where you need to have like sort of rising tension and obstacles and like work to overcome the problem and it reaches a climax. And then, you know, you have sort of falling action and resolution after that, that's sort of baked into the DNA, but you'll have to start to then map out how do you fit this story to something that's interesting because you could have something where, you solve um, the story very, or you solve the mystery if it's a medical mystery very early on, or if it's an ethical dilemma. And then um, it's all sort of what we call falling action from there, in which case you're like, okay, this isn't actually going to be interesting anymore to the viewers to watch. So we, how do we reposition it? We call it sort of like shift it to the right in terms of the story so that more things are sort of are, are coming out later in the story so that it keeps the audience sort of invested long enough to get to the resolution point. Because mm-hmm. if things wrap up too early, then you're just losing, you're losing the audience. And then you have to find the pacing too, because things have to weave together and you don't want everything to like be exploding exactly at the same moment. And then things fall apart. You got it. It's, it's all, it's a lot of dancing with that. Yeah. I'm kind of curious with, you know, when you're talking about shifting to the right and then falling action, when the audience lose interest, and I don't know if you follow the Game of Thrones series. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts about the Game of Thrones final season, because a lot of people are under the impression that they had resolved the biggest obstacle too early, where they killed the Night King, right, uh, before they essentially resolved the Red Keep and, and Cersei, right? A lot of people feel like, okay, Cersei and the Red Keep, all of those stuff, they need to come in uh, before the Night King and the, the um, White Walkers. And so, because that seems to be like more of a greater threat to humanity and whatever. And I'm kind of, I mean, my inclination felt in agreement to that, but I don't know, what do you think in relation to what you just said, said about shifting to the right, right? The falling action, I mean, I think that there were a lot of complete, you know, it's, 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 it's hard for me to do like, um, 
backdoor or backseat storytelling in terms of critiquing a lot of stuff that's made. And, and I had a, a, a writer that I worked with who um, made a very wise statement, which is people don't realize how much work it takes to even make mediocre television. Yeah. <laughs> like it just takes exhausting amounts of work because the yeah. process is so collaborative. So, you know, what uh, Benioff and Weiss, I think did a lot of amazing things. If I, if I could view it, you know, what didn't work for me, yeah, I would agree that the um, the Night King was definitely, and the the entire battle um, episode was obviously the most dramatic one of everything. It's almost like everything else didn't matter yeah. um, in some ways, uh, and that seemed like the uh, absolutely the larger threat. And so once you've dealt with that, then it just becomes like, okay, the Game of Thrones. Who's going to sit in the chair at the end? Which feels like not quite as important. Now we're just back to sort of squabbles in its way. Um, so I agree with that. And, and the way that they executed that was very, was very powerful. And it would have been interesting to see sort of the nature of humanity having to work out their differences before they actually can face the, the nature of the Night King, which many people view as a metaphor for climate change. Um, and that if you're, if you're going to uh, be facing this sort of serious existential threat, we need to work out our differences first and not be trying to figure out who's going to just be the one person in power. Um, you know, I think a lot of other things people um, cite, I, I agree with to a degree. I think that um, the emotional journey of um, Cersei, not as much, but um, Daenerys, her turn didn't feel as earned by yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, that whole aspect that the end and I don't for spoilers for those that haven't seen, I think we're still in the window. The person who ends up taking the iron throne at the end and being handed it via a monologue also didn't feel quite as earned. Yeah. That was a lot of things, but the, the, there's an interesting other aspect, which is um, there's a critique that's floated around around sociological storytelling. Um, And this is a critique of sociological versus psychological um, I think that the the early uh, many most of the early seasons were based on books, and they were very faithful to those books. From my understanding, I haven't read those books, but that those were very based on sociological storytelling. The idea that um, you set up the environment, and the environment really shapes many of the choices of an individual. The most common sort of soci- popular sociological sort of TV show is The Wire. It sets up the framework of a city of Baltimore. And then what happens, though, is that very much in Hollywood, we are traditional, we are schooled in telling psychological stories. What's the individual person's journey? And that there was a shift that happened when um, the books were no longer there as sort of the foundational resource, which is they shifted into the psychological storytelling, which is how can I tell this one person's story only? And they lost touch with what's the, the, the world that we're shaping it. Um, and that something something got lost in that. Um, and I think that you really see it jumps in terms of the way stories are told once they get there, like when they're flying, um, when they're up in the beyond the wall and they're being surrounded by the walkers. And then suddenly Daenerys flies up with the with one of her dragons. Spoilers for those that haven't seen it. It's like, OK, they just went all the way to the south of the entire island and all the way back in the series of an act of the show historically that would have taken like an episode to journey. Like it's just doesn't make sense anymore. And you can see that they're now starting to squeeze things in for the purpose of fitting the time compression of TV and all the, the sort of conceits that go with that. And now we're like, 
okay, we it's not a jump the shark kind of moment, as we say, but it's like, there's something very fundamentally different in the way stories are being told at that point. And I think things started to shift from there. Yeah, I love, I mean, these are some of the points that you hit. I felt like it's it's so true, but particularly the sociological storytelling, because yeah, I mean, now that you mention it, it does seem like they they are trying to still develop the characters, but de- almost devoid of, you know, a little bit more of the context and everyone around it, though they hint at it. Yeah, I think I like your word. It doesn't feel quite earned, right? Like there's almost yeah. like you need to earn the, the belief that, totally. yes, Daenerys had gone mad because whatever, John's gone quiet, right? Um, her closest friend got her head got shot right like all these Mm -hmm. things you see it but just because you see it doesn't mean that you you quite believe it just yet it needs to i love this but i i guess one of the dilemmas that they dealt with because it seemed like the creators who've done marvelous job throughout the the series of course um i think they were on to another project so i think even then you do you, you do kind of empathize with the challenge that they're faced okay how do we fit such a massive story in this little um, compact area. But I want to kind of touch on, again, circling back to your point on falling action and shifting to the right, if, right, and we're using their, um, the example of Game of Thrones just because that's what people know. But let's say that we are going to stick to, okay, you know, the Night King's going to kill earlier before, you know, we solve who gets to get to sit on the throne or whatever, like what could have been done differently? Like after post post um, um, you know post that ba- big battle, right? And uh, what could we have done perhaps to improve that level of you know ownership, I guess, and uh, to the story that that will then still kind of create that impact of okay, I'm feeling in- invested still. I, I'm loving that you know Bran is now sitting on the throne. Like, are there things that we could have done or is it just too little too late if you put the the biggest battle or biggest kind of climax uh, that early? I think it's I think it's hard to I think you can have it. I mean, the entire final episode felt very much like falling action in that way. Our final episodes. Um, I think that the the difficulty when you have and again, it's a it's a difference in terms of the storytelling, like the, the type of storytelling, the, 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 um, the precedent that was essentially there. Um, you, you essentially have this very slow burning form of story where everything is, is unwinding at this very slow pace. And then you have these sudden massive jumps that feel like they're crammed in at the end of this last season and that ends up feeling like people's turns, like their character turns, like what's happening with them, the changes that are happening aren't quite earned. Like if you were to do a, an episode of network TV, broadcast network TV, and like someone gives like, okay, we're going to put Bran on the throne and we're going we're gonna to justify it in a single monologue, you could probably pull that off because everything has to happen in like this very short time frame. But when things have been set up and the audience is expecting this very slow developing kind of mosaic um, that's occurring, it just doesn't feel unlike enough. Um, people were hungry for more. How are they going to pay it off? And it's almost like there, there may have never been possible to do it. It's possible that, you know, that the, the original author, uh, 
has not finished the series because he's done so much setup that it's not possible to pay it off in a way that's going to feel ultimately fulfilling. That's all possible as well. So I don't know that there's a right way. I think that that getting into um, to people's heads rather than in a public sphere, I think being able to play out the internal debate in um, this is another sort of, you know, uh, approach done with storytelling, not just doing like what they had was um, I'm blanking on his name at this point, the dwarf. Um, oh, Tyrion. Uh, Tyrion. Thank you. Yeah. Tyrion Lannister was there and he was sort of uh, telling everybody in a public court why they should do what they're doing. And it, that itself um, doesn't quite feel like it's, enough. I think, playing out more in terms of backdoor sort of dealings and debates and what somebody does in private are, are more interesting ways of contrasting the sort of public versus private thoughts on something. And that would be, a, a, to me, a more interesting way to sort of get to the conclusion um, of brand, they did that a bit, and and honestly, I haven't rewatched the ending since it first aired. But I think that that being able to to play these aspects out in terms of coming to uh, the going through the throes of of wrestling of who should actually be on the throne and coming to the end of it um, would be to me maybe help it feel more earned. Mm, I love this. This is I think you're so true because it does seem like there's quite a bit of dialogue to just wrap things up, you know, and, and your point on maybe focusing on showing rather than yeah. telling through enactment and Absolutely. events, right. Actions and actions um, that really tells the world more than a grand speech, which I mean, Tyrion's always been great at it, but even yeah. with Tyrion, one of the conflicting things that I felt when he was presented in that, forum is like well he just been he was a kind of a conflict piece he had just been uh he had just committed treason right so the the board or whatever the forum should feel divided and so why should they all listen to his opinion on who's i mean so i i felt like there's something that's not quite the puzzle doesn't quite fit nicely to your point um i do appreciate that which is i think is fantastic now we've taken everything um, that you share, we ta- touched on therapy, we touched on, um, you know, a little bit about your, um, you know, the storytelling and, and writing a, a marvelous piece of content story that people would engage with, relate with, identify with, that's impactful, uh, but also entertaining, right, which I think is also important. Um, and I'm kind of, uh, believe it or not, we're kind of nearing the end of our <laughs> conversation. So I wanted to kind of share this uh, moment, actually, to have you um, and have you please share with the audience where they can learn more about you, perhaps future projects that you're willing to share with other people that, you know, that they can learn about. Um, and then we'll wrap up the interview, Paul. Sure. Um, Talia, they can they can find me. People can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Paul R. Puri, P-U-R-I. Um, I'm the only like psychiatrist who has all these other uh, jobs as a TV writer, yeah. and I'm the chief medical officer of Udify, and and uh, you know doing all these other random. Uh, they're not random, but they're all interconnected yeah. uh, jobs. But you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, I love. Well, I mean, and multi passionate. I think that's really. I love that you're pursuing all of it because a lot of people think that they have to choose or sacrifice something that they really enjoy because they have this other thing that's taken up this time. But I think you're a great example for everyone who's listening that, yeah, you can, you can, you know, you can do it all in a meaningful way. 
Um, maybe not all at the same time, but that's right. Yeah, that's the key, right? That's the key. Yeah, and and to be clear, like I'm, this is not all, like you know, I started writing my first screenplay when I was 17, like, and I was writing short stories before that. Like these things happen. It takes time. And it takes, you know, it takes effort and, and devotion to anything that you want to pursue in a meaningful way. So absolutely, you can have everything, you just can't have it all right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is key because, you know, it is, and it is better, right, to have everything kind of spread out and they develop into one another. Otherwise, you'll break, like it can't possibly be, you know, in 10 different places at once. So I think your story is fascinating, hopefully it's helpful and inf- informational, for yeah. all of our audience. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening to definitely check out Paul on LinkedIn or wherever else you can find him. And uh, for those of you guys who are listening, be sure to hit that follow, subscribe, add collect uh, button so that the next time we share a story like Paul's, you'll be notified. Um, and until next time, you guys, let's keep doing it. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Tony. <laughs>